I don't think there's a better place to be than here with God's people and in his presence. So glad you're here. Glad you're with us online as well. My name is Paul Buckley. I'm the lead pastor here. And we are in a series in Romans. We'll be in chapter 12 uh, this morning, verses 3 through 8. So you can turn there. We'll have it projected, but I encourage you to look in your own Bible, either on your phone or the old-fashioned paper type, which I think are the best, to follow along. I don't know if you've heard of the idea of mindfulness. It's currently a hot topic that's out there. Um, And you maybe have seen it in different places. Actually, my watch, my Fitbit watch, uh, not only tracks heart rate, sleep, exercise, and activities, but also mindfulness. I I don't think I do mindfulness, but it has a way to track it somehow. Um, Local community centers offer seminars on mindfulness. and, And there's a lot to it. There's a lot more than may meet the eye and what what's behind it, but mindfulness is basically an exercise in proper awareness. Uh, It's realigning your thoughts away from the stress and concerns that might drive your your emotional life, your relational life, and drive your day to to realign those along what's most important, what you should be most aware of. So it's this idea of awareness, and and there's truth in this. Uh, there's, There's good good principles in this. The Bible actually calls us to a certain type of mindfulness, a certain type of awareness. Um, And for sure, slowing down and readjusting your awareness is really important. And so what we're going to do right now, actually, in in the Word of God, no, I'm not going to ask you to to close your eyes and and, do anything like that, Um, but in this exercise of being before God's Word, we are going to do biblical mindfulness. And our passage today especially uh, is a passage that calls us to rethink how we think, to readjust our mindset, to practice biblical mindfulness. We all need it, no matter who you are, no matter how well you might think you're doing in this category, you're not doing as well as God would want you to to do, and he loves you, and he's given us his word And he meets with us himself. God the Holy Spirit is here in our midst. It's amazing. Um, So let's pray and ask him to help us to adjust our awareness, to change our mindfulness in line with his glorious truth. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths in this passage today. Um, Lord, I thank you as I've prepared. It's just been so rich for me. And I now, Lord, want to serve you and serve each one here, each one watching as well, that we could encounter you in your word, that we could experience a change in our mindset in a powerful way to have our lives adjusted and reordered, redirected, renewed in you. Thank you for your great love and mercy. Thank you for your presence. And now visit us with power. Help me to teach and proclaim your word well and help us to hear from you. Be glorified in this, Lord. Show once again how good and glorious you are, we pray, through our time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 3, going to verse 8. Paul says, For by the grace given to me, I say to every one among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. 
let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. The one who contributes, in generosity. The one who leads, with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy, with cheerfulness. God's word, Romans 12, 3 through 8. While we're making our way through this wonderful book, the letter to the Romans, the letter to the church in Rome by Paul. Um, and this letter, uh, we talked about it again in this series, that this letter was about the righteousness of God. Uh, and we've been learning about that. That's not a word we use a whole lot in our culture. But it really is a concept that is very central to our existence, whether we understand or use the word or not. All of us live in this reality of a desire, being torn between a desire for a world full of goodness and love and the reality that humans fall terribly short, both as a whole and as individuals. And as Toby already led us through in prayer, the events of this past week once again make this reality horribly clear. And we all cry out, for change, we all cry out for some sort of resolution of this tension between this longing for goodness and, and, and wholeness and rightness and this reality of how we all fall short. And Romans 1 through 11 brings us the diagnosis and cure for this reality. It's the issue of righteousness, it's the issue of the lack of righteousness on, the, on our parts. And God's answer for that. His salvation from our unrighteousness. And we've been learning, of course, as we go through that, that our only hope and the sure hope for true righteousness and rescue from our unrighteousness is found only in God himself. In the electing and rescuing love of the Father. In the victorious life, death, and resurrection of the Son. And in the regeneration and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Through God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, through the gospel, we have rescue from unrighteousness and a new life that is brought to us by God. This is truly amazing mercy. And we talked about that last week in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. This reality of looking back on this mercy of God that comes to us in this place of unrighteousness, that counts us righteous in Christ, that grants us grace by the Spirit to begin to walk out the righteousness of Christ in us in real ways in our lives. This great mercy is to propel us in life by the mercies of God. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service, your spiritual worship. We talked about that. And so we're turning the corner in this book and we're starting to see how this gets lived out. And, and what we're going to see in these verses and in following... There are very practical ways that we do this. So last week we talked about this transformation, being transformed by the renewal of your mind. Well, that's what Paul is talking about in this passage, verses 3 through 8. So let me tell you what I believe this teaches, and then we'll go through it part by part. I believe that this section of Scripture teaches us that lives transformed by God's grace give themselves for the good of others. Lives transformed by God's grace give themselves for the good of others. And such a life, transformed by grace, rejects proud thinking, embraces healthy thinking, and pursues 
heartfelt serving. So those are the three points that are up there, I think, that uh, will follow along. So first, rejecting proud thinking. Paul starts out in verse 3, and he says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Paul starts off by speaking of the grace given to him, and, and we're going to see through this section that, that this idea of grace as the starting point for this new life is emphasized four different times, and Paul himself right away is saying, I am operating from grace myself, and because of that, now I'm exhorting you, I'm encouraging you, I'm saying to you these things. We'll look at that a little more shortly. And he tells them how to live. He's going to tell them how to think. He's going to talk about healthy thinking and heartfelt serving. But before he does that, he tells them what not to think, what not to do. And certainly an important part of understanding what we are to do, the positive side, is understanding what we ought not to do. It's the contrast that often brings the clarity. And so these things go together. Paul is serving us by first telling us what not to do. What we have to get rid of first. Because if we don't do that, if we just talk about the positive, we may not adequately address the negative that will hinder us from walking in the good things, the positive that God has for us. So Paul and caring for the Roman church, and God caring for us, first tells us what not to do. And what does he say not to do? Everyone among you, he speaks to everyone, there's not a person excluded. I say to everyone among you, and by the way, recognize that that extends to us. So if he's saying to everyone among you in the Roman church, that extends to everyone among us here at King of Grace Church, and certainly the whole church throughout time and the whole globe. He says to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. He wants to ask everyone not to think of themselves more highly than they ought to think. This is a sad reality that that is true for all of us, right? I, I think... I think there might be some in this room that at times think more highly of themselves than they ought to think. Any? You don't have to raise your hand. I'll raise my hand. <laughs> the reality is, guys, this is a pretty serious problem. And so Paul is good to address it right off the bat. The reality is that we all think very highly of ourselves. To different degrees, I don't know your, your, your heart, I don't know what's in your heart and in, in your mind, but this is a human condition. So Paul says, every one of you, and God, I think, says to that, every one of us, we all have a very high estimate of, high, very high estimate of ourselves. We believe the very best, usually, about our motives and efforts, don't we? We usually, we usually assume, yeah, the very best motives behind what we do. Um, many, and maybe most of us, probably like ourselves more than anyone else. That's, if you want to be honest, right? This is awkward, I know. We pretend that this is just not the case, but the reality is I think most of us like ourselves most of all, and we like ourselves. We think our, that we ourselves are the best sort of people as well. That, that's the reality. We have this orientation that way. We, um, as, the, as the brother in, um, oh, what's the, regarding uh, Raymond, what is the one? Sorry, I should have written my reference. Rain Man. I'm a very excellent driver, right? The reality is we all think we're very excellent drivers. We think we're great. We think we're way better than we are. And, and I could spend the next 40 minutes actually just teasing this out with examples from my own life. 
and embarrassing myself for the sake of illustrating this, but I think we can all understand this. Matter of fact, this is a real issue if you're a pollster. Uh, in those uh, business, the business of polling people and asking them questions, uh, they've had to learn that this is a serious problem with getting the right data. They call it the halo effect. If you ask somebody about their practices, they're always going to shade everything positively about themselves. One example, actually, is church attendance. This has been shown over and over again. If, if uh, the Gallup polls actually did a, a survey, and they've done this over and over again. Uh, they did a survey of a thousand different Americans nationwide, um, and they asked them, in the last seven days, did you attend a church service, other than weddings and funerals? In the last seven days, did you attend a church service? And, and consistently, 40% say yes. 40% said yes, I attended a church service this past week. The reality is, though, when you start looking into the records and finding out exactly, doing the homework and seeing exactly how many attend, the number is less than half of that. The number is about 15 to 18% attend church. So what were the other people doing? I don't think, maybe they were necessarily lying. They might have been aware of it, but they were shading. They were looking at themselves the way we all tend to look at ourselves very favorably. And not thinking, well, actually, yeah, it was a month ago that I went the last time. They were thinking it was last week. This is the reality for all of us. We all think we're very excellent church attenders. And otherwise, we think very highly of ourselves. We do. You do. And this passage is for you. It's for me. We need to take seriously this call to not think too highly of ourselves. And I would submit to you, by the way, that, that many of the problems that you experience, many problems that I experience in life, come from this problem of thinking too highly of myself. Because if I misdiagnose myself, I misdiagnose the cure as well, the help that I need. And so the Bible is good. God is good to us in diagnosing us properly. And so Romans 1 through 11 has been an effort in trying to address this reality that we think too highly of ourselves, right? Right? And it's been tough. It's been some hard medicine to swallow, hasn't it? There's a lot of verses in 1 through 11 that seek to dethrone ourselves. This is the problem, right? We have enthroned ourselves as king of our own universe, worthy of being on that throne. And we've dethroned God from that place. And this is turning the world upside down because God alone is good. God alone is the source of all that is good and right and true. And he indeed loves us and wants to grant us blessing in that reality, but we must dethrone ourselves first and enthrone him and learn to invert what we're used to, saying he is the one alone who is good. And so Romans 1 through 11 has addressed the reality of who we are to, to bring us down a number of notches, to humble us. So it says things like this, Romans 1.21, for although they knew God, speaking of humanity uh, as a whole, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Romans 2.1, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the same things. Romans 3.10, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 7, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. 
Romans 9.20, God addresses us. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Verse after verse, chapter after chapter, dethroning us, speaking the truth to us, not to be mean, not to be cruel, but to be helpful, to, to speak what is true, that we might embrace it, that we may no longer have such a high opinion of ourselves. And of course, in these 11 chapters, we've, we've received the wonderful rescue that comes when we re-enthrone God. And so, Romans 3.23 speaks of all falling short, and then it says, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, so we're counted righteous by faith. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.8, but God shows His love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What sweet words. Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Romans 8, 38, for I am sure that neither life nor death, nor life, uh, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The good news of Jesus Christ the salvation that comes through His righteousness alone, the gospel properly understood and embraced creates people who do not think too highly of themselves, nor too lowly, but just right in Jesus. It comes through fully understanding your terrible sin, brokenness, and need for forgiveness, and the rescue provided in Christ. It comes from realizing there's more, that this rescue is more than met in the Holy Son of God, crucified in your place, risen to everlasting life, reigning until all enemies are under His feet. It comes in being brutally honest with yourself and seeing yourself as God sees you, both apart from Christ and then in Christ. I love the oft-used quote uh, of Tim Keller. You've probably heard it multiple times from this pulpit and elsewhere. He says in the book, The Reason for God, the Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me. Yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both swaggering and sniveling. I cannot feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. I do not think more of myself, nor less of myself. Instead, I think of, my, of myself less. And Carl Henry, the uh, Christian leader of, of the 20th century, when uh, responding to an enthusiastic con commendation of himself, said, how on earth can anyone be arrogant when standing beside the cross? This statement by Paul of what not to do is such an important truth for us. And I would submit that for many of us, our lack of progress in the Christian life, our lack of perhaps joy and love and holiness may have everything to do with our failure to stop thinking too highly of ourselves. 
So let me ask you some questions in application. What is your self-assessment of your character? Of your abilities? How do you see yourself? Do you see yourself accurately? Who is the greatest sinner you know? When, that, when I say that, who comes to mind? Now this is not to diminish the reality of other people's sins. and They may be significant. But for most of us, we should have a much greater knowledge of our own sins than others. Sure, other people sin against us, but we don't know the, the extent of that. In the same way we know our sins and see our weaknesses and our temptations. We don't know the motives that we would in others that we know in ourselves. So when we pile up the analysis and as far as what we know, I think for most of us, we can honestly say the greatest sinner that I know is myself. The greatest problem in this world is not that person, but me, as far as I know. Do you really see yourself that bad? Do you really see yourself so bad that God, the Son, Jesus Christ, alone could rescue you? Do you also see yourself so loved that God himself in the flesh died for you and rose again. I'd encourage you to be ruthless with yourself in this. It's unpleasant, I know. But the cure comes from being honest and lowering your opinion of yourself and looking to Jesus and learning to think in a healthy way. That's the next point. Romans 12.3 continues. Paul says what not to do, but then says this, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith God has, has assigned. Paul tells us to think with sober judgment, as it says in the ESV. The, the New American Standard says sound judgment. The, the Christian Standard Bible says sensibly. The New Living Translation, a great uh, translation for perhaps everyday devotions, says be honest in your evaluation. The idea behind all these translations is a thinking that is not too highly of yourself, but a thinking that is right and good and accurate and sound and healthy. And so I'm calling it healthy thinking. The right sort of thinking. And it's important for us to understand what does Paul mean by this. Obviously he's contrasting it with thinking too highly of yourself. So there's some difference in how you think of yourself, but, but what is it? What, what is the concrete reality that he's trying to teach? Well, I think we our passage teaches us this, the context informs us how to understand this reality of healthy teaching. He's going to go on and say each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. He goes right into that. And then he says in verse 4, for as in one body we have many members and the members do not all have the same function, so we though many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. And so his reference point where he's going with his healthy thinking is immediately to this idea that's according to the measure of faith. And then he's going to say that two times in this passage. The one who prophesies is to do in proportion to the faith. So same sort of phrase as measure of faith, proportion of faith. He's already said, by the grace of God given me, I say these things to you. And he's going to say that again. According to the grace given to us, verse 6, let us use these gifts. And so what's your guess on what healthy thinking is? What does he mean? 
he describes how it works. It's according to the measure of faith that you have, according to the grace given you. So what Paul is teaching us here is that healthy thinking is a grace-based thinking. Why does Paul use the word faith, the measure of faith that God has assigned? Is this, this meaning something else besides grace? Well, he's using it in a synonymous way with grace here because we see four times he says the same sort of thing. And so how do you see those as synonymous? Well, faith is a gift, isn't it? Faith is a gift of God's grace because he loves you and Christ died for you and purchased on the cross the forgiveness of your sins and the right to access intimate communion with God and the Holy Spirit to be in your life in a, in new, in a new life, regeneration. That is a gift. Faith is a gift that he grants us. Yes, we need to exercise it, but it's a gift that's there. It's of grace. And we all live in faith. And when you experience faith, you experience grace. And so they're intertwined. And he gives each one grace. He gives each one faith. And so we exercise the gifts according to the faith that's given us. It's already given. There's a gift. There's a gift of grace. So we believe him and we act and we walk in this grace. I hope that makes sense. I hope you can see that in this passage. I want you to be convinced of what the word of God says so that you can... Trust him, not me, ultimately, and walk in these things. So what is healthy thinking then? It's grace-based thinking. It's living your life in regards to grace. It's living your life knowing that, yes, I don't deserve God's grace. I fall short in my sin. I'm weak and dependent on God. I'm a created being. He alone is, is the creator. Everything comes from him. And yet he's gracious. He's given me his son and he's for me. And so I'm happy with living that way. I'm content to not try to elevate myself, but to elevate Jesus, the righteous one who overcame sin and death. To elevate the Father and his sovereign goodness. To elevate the ministry of the Spirit in my life and through my life. I'm happy to think highly of God, the three in one, not myself. I'm happy to live by grace looking to him. And not only that, because these are connected, I'm happy to think in regards to others. Healthy thinking is thinking in regards to others, not myself. It's looking at the grace in my life and realizing that this grace is given because the Lord loves me, but it's not given for me to keep. It's given for me to give away. Proud thinking is to think of myself. It's about me. And the sad Reality is, we can take the grace of God and the gifts of God that we've been given and turn them to thinking highly of ourselves. We can look at our gifts, whether they're supernatural gifts from the Lord or just the gifts that we're born with, and we can start to make them about ourselves. Anyone ever do that? I think we do it all the time. I think the sad reality is in life, we go through life often experiencing blessings experiencing our own gifts and turning it towards ourselves. It's kind of like uh, life is an endless selfie picture. Whenever we experience something, we want to take a picture of ourselves in front of that thing with our, our fish face and so forth, celebrating us. And I'm not trying to give you a hard time if you've ever done that. Um, I was going to show a picture of me doing it, but I didn't think that would be a good memory to, to you, for you to retain. Um, 
But life can be like that for us. We can think too highly of ourselves. We can turn the gifts that we've been given inward and live inwardly. That's not healthy thinking. That's not sound thinking. And, and so many of the maladies of life, the struggles that we have, and, and I would say even mental health issues at times are because things have turned inward rather than outward. Rather than realizing he's given me all this and I want to love him. I want to trust him. And he's given me all this and I want to love others. I want to find ways that I can serve and be part of the whole. That's what he's saying here, right? Do you see it? And in verse 4, he goes right into this. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. This is healthy thinking. This is sound judgment. This is how to rightly think of ourselves and our gifts. Now, this is very different than how the world does things. This is very different than how we would do things naturally. The world and our natural humanity thinks in terms of self-expression, self-fulfillment, self-enjoyment according to our unique gifts. Healthy thinking thinks in terms of sharing those things with others, living, enjoying the grace of God as a free gift from God and enjoying giving it away thinking about our impact on others, getting our eyes off of ourselves and how we feel about ourselves and what we think about ourselves and what our identity might be one way or the other and actually finding our identity in an outward way in Jesus and in others. Not in trying to figure ourselves out. If you want to find yourself, give yourself away. You'll find out who you are as you do that, as you give yourself to Jesus first and foremost and as you give yourself to serve others. This is God's design. This is who God is himself, by the way. The Trinity is ever relating one to another and giving of themselves one to another. And by God's grace, he's brought us into this wonder of love, this eternal love, that we might be part of giving ourselves to him and giving ourselves to one another. And we're made in his image. And you'll never be happy apart from living the way he designed you to live. To receive his love and to give it away to receive his gifts and give them away. And he brings great blessing through this. I would submit that so much of our lives have been enriched by people who have shared their gifts and given them away. Just think, what if people who were gifted throughout history decided just to become selfish and, and it was only about how they felt about their gifts? What if Mozart only wrote music for himself? What if Einstein never shared his thoughts with others? What if Edison kept all those inventions in his basement? What if all those gifted surgeons never shared what they learned? What if the church leaders throughout history refused their call? What if the Apostle Paul decided to keep it all to himself and Jesus and go live in a cave somewhere? Think of anything you've received in your life. It's come through somebody giving their gifts away. Think ultimately of Christ himself, who came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Brothers and sisters, let's reject proud thinking. and Let grace shape how we see ourselves and our lives. Let it propel us towards heartfelt serving. My final point, verses 6 through 8. Paul lists out seven different ways to serve with seven different types of gifts. This is not an exhaustive list. I would say that even all the lists in Scripture of the different spiritual gifts are not meant to be exhaustive, but exemplary. In other words, they show us what it looks like. They show us some of the more prominent and perhaps more important or more common gifts, but it's not an exhaustive list. The point here is to illustrate the reality that there are these gifts that are given. 
And then everyone has a gift. Each one has a gift. Each one of you, if you, are, if you belong to Jesus, you have a gift. If you don't belong to Jesus, you still have gifts. You're made in the image of God. He calls you to live in this reality and put your trust in Christ even today. And Paul highlights these seven different gifts. And in each instance of explaining the gift, he explains basically an adverb, how it operates. And so he says, if, in, if prophecy, actually we have a table to show, if prophecy in proportion to our faith and service, uh, if service in our serving, if one teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And you might think, what in the world does Paul mean, the one who exhorts in his exhortation? That's repetitive. Well, it's a form of speech that is, is basically emphasizing the act. It's basically saying, the one who exhorts, go exhort. The one who teach, go teach. Walk out your healthy thinking. Walk out the grace of God by enthusiastically and zealously practicing your gifts. Go for it. Do it. Start to contribute. Start to serve. Start to give your life away in all these different ways. And so I'll quickly cover the seven gifts. And if you have questions on spiritual gifts, I'd love to answer those questions. If you have a question about your own gift, I'd love to help you. The very best thing to do, though, is to start to serve in any way you can. And you probably already know some degree of how God uses you. Others will help you in shaping that. Start serving. But I want to help you however I can. But just to list these seven gifts, Paul speaks of prophecy. This is a gift that grants the ability to receive a revelation from God about a particular situation or person. That revelation is intended to edify, to encourage that person. So we practice New Testament prophecy here as a church. We believe that the gifts continue uh, under the authority of the word. New Testament prophecy is never authoritative. It's not like Old Testament prophecy. It comes under the word. And it's to point people in their specific uh, situations and issues toward the Word of God, ultimately toward Jesus. So it should function that way. It shouldn't be a, a sideshow, but it should point to Jesus and build people up. Um, and we, we love the use of these gifts, and a number of you are gifted in this way. And let me encourage you to practice healthy thinking by asking God to use you. I don't want to keep on coming to the mic. Um, I'm glad to serve, but there's many other people here um, who could come up and share encouraging words, and we will help you in that. So let us know. Put me out of work in this category, please. He mentioned service. Uh, it's a generic word where we get the, the word deacon, this idea of ministering as well. So basically he's saying those who minister, and this could speak of those who lead ministries, like a diaconal sort of leadership, or just people who are members of teams. Be zealous in your serving. Under the equipping and oversight of elders, serve away. Be a part of, of using your gifts in whatever capacity to serve. He speaks of teaching, the gift of understanding and communicating the truth of God's word in line with proper theology and biblical fidelity that equips God's people um, that they might mature and bear good fruits. So the one who teaches, be enthusiastic in your teaching. And there are many who have gifts of teaching in our midst. And this speaks also in a specific way to those who are called to the office of pastor. Paul lists exhortation. This is a little different than teaching. This is not just informing someone, but it's inspiring them and calling them to, uh, to believe and obey a truth, encouraging them, coming alongside. And, and it's similar to the idea that we talk about preaching, teaching and preaching. Um, it's the proclamation that inspires people to believe and obey and follow. Paul mentions the gift of giving. 
This is contributing to the needs of others, contributing to the needs of the church, its life and mission, caring for the poor, and those who have this gift are to do it with a sincere, heartfelt generosity. Use your gift. Thank God for those who have this gift. Many, many of you do. Thank you. Um, the gift of leading, that gift of being able to organize, direct, and oversee people and ministries for the greater good shouldn't be done begrudgingly, but zealously. The gift of mercy, a very common, very important gift. I think it's the most important, most prominent gift in most churches and probably the most important gift for the health and life of the church. Those who serve the needy, the hurting, the struggling. And they're to serve with cheerfulness, not with sadness and cynicism, but with the love and faith and hope that propels them towards cheerfulness. Whatever gift we have, we're to exercise a healthy thinking and practice of it. I'll share this. I, uh, time-wise, I don't have much time. But I want to share the example. There, there's examples in our midst. Uh, but I thought of the example of Tabitha in Acts chapter 9. This is a story about a woman who's died and raised to life. And that's the central theme here. But there's much we learn about this sort of healthy thinking from her life. It says, Acts 9, 36. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent men, two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went, went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter told them, put them all aside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. Wonderful story. And I just wanted to use it as an example. Here's a woman who used her gifts. She had healthy thinking. She lived to, to bless others, to care for those who were in need. These widows around her were the needy in the church. And she was making clothing for them. She was serving them. And, and so when she died, they were so sad to this dear friend who served them so well. And thank God, God restored this gift to the church. Many of you are like Tabitha. And you serve with your gifts. And you give yourself away. And I'm so grateful for that. Let me just encourage you in closing uh, to think about your own life. To think about this call to no longer think with proud thinking, but healthy thinking. Grace-based thinking. Grace-driven thinking having received so much blessing and love from God, having been given gifts that you might give yourself away. And so many of you already serve in so many ways with your gifts. I'm grateful. I would submit that some of you are perhaps underemployed in your gifts. And God wants you to take some steps of using your gifts. We have need. We have lots of opportunity. We have no lack of opportunity, by the way. I've had people ask me, is there room for me here or there? And there's always room. There's so much to be done in and through this church, and there's so much we could expand into. So don't let uh, the sense, is there a place for me to somehow keep you from giving your gifts? If you have gifts, we want to hear about it. We want to help you. We want to place you in the right places. So things like children's ministry, we need help there. Our tech team uh, needs some help. If you have some tech ability, we could use your help. Our music team, if you're musical and you love to worship, would love to get your help. Just uh, if, if you're in our church, we want to grow our women's ministry in all the different ways. We talked on Mother's Day about how God uses women to serve. And actually, I'm um, hoping to have a meeting, gather the women together, and just talk about it like we did a couple of years ago.
and talk about ways for women to serve in our church. We need to establish diaconal care team. We've been talking about it. Pastor Jeff, uh, when he was here, help, was helping us get that established. We need a team uh, to provide diaconal care, to so care for those in crisis of some sort. We could use help for missions and outreach as well. And of course, most pressing and most wonderful right now, the opportunity to serve in Vacation Bible School. So I want to invite you to that. I don't want to be the Holy Spirit for you. I want the Holy Spirit to be the Holy Spirit for you. So I want to just now as we transition, take a minute and just pray. Maybe there's an element of proud thinking in your life you need to confess. Ask the Lord to help you. Maybe there's an, a way to think in a healthy way. You need help and power to do that. It's not easy. It's not easy to get up and share at the prophecy mic. But ask the Lord for power in that. And then consider one way maybe you can take a step to serve with your gifts. Thank you for how you serve already. Hear the Lord's gladness in that. But if there's another step, let's consider that. And then Pastor Toby will come up and transition us.